0: Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And your neighbor as yourself. He said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell among robbers. And they stripped him, and beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. By chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, such a well-known parable from our Lord and Savior Jesus. I pray that you would give us fresh eyes this morning to contemplate the truths that are proclaimed to us through it. Thank you, Lord, that your word is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, that it pierces to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I pray that this morning you would lay us all bare as your word examines our hearts and our minds. I pray that those who have hoped in good works for salvation would be stripped of that hope and that that false hope would be replaced with the only true hope that man can have of salvation, that is of faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, for those who are my brothers and sisters in Christ, I pray that you would encourage us onward in doing good deeds for your glory. Lord, use us as your ambassadors. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in Luke 10, verse 21, Jesus declared in a moment of joyous, exuberant prayer in the Holy Spirit. We saw this last week. I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Jesus goes on to say, yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. And then here we come to Luke 10.25, and it's as if it's just on cue here, where all of a sudden we see a certain lawyer stands up and puts Jesus to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Here was a man who was schooled in the Scriptures. He was a Jewish lawyer, which meant that he was one well-versed in the law. He had spent his life knowing and articulating and explaining the law. Yet he comes to Jesus wondering on what basis he can be sure that he'll inherit eternal life. Why does he ask Jesus? Shouldn't he already know? Didn't God's word already speak to this issue? Well, it seems good to me to uh, point out a few qualities regarding this man's question as we get started. First of all, this lawyer was operating from the belief that there was such a thing as eternal life. He asked, how can I be sure that I might inherit eternal life? Which means that he believed that there was such a thing. When interacting with people today, it may not be that all, all that often that we have someone coming up to us out of the blue and saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Perhaps part of the reason why is because of the influence of naturalism. It's had such a devastating effect on people's beliefs and our culture today. Many denied the reality of life after death. So they wouldn't even ask such a question. They think that we just go back to dust and that's it. They propose that man's life completely ceases when he dies. That's just merely another example of how wicked men suppress the truth in unrighteousness, as Romans 1.18 says it, because Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us, God has put eternity in men's hearts. I just received a picture text yesterday from an individual that was mad, with me and our church to find one of our church business cards inside of a 150th anniversary copy of Charles Charles Darwin's Origin of the Species at a bookstore. (laughs) This is the book that was produced by Ray Comfort, which we gave away at Lone Star College last spring. I have no idea how that book giveaway landed inside of a bookstore for someone to purchase. But this guy was irate. As a matter of fact, he sent me a picture text. He had a picture of the book opened up with our business card taped there. And then he just let me have it and just kind of swore and some other things and was very upset that someone from our church would dare place church business cards inside of a bookstore's books. Now, I explained to him that we did not do such a thing. We didn't go into a private establishment and start putting our our, uh, business cards inside of books. Instead, we had given them away, and it was all all explanation. But then I at the end of that, asked him if he would be willing to talk with me some more about what he believes. And he wrote back, and he said, well, I consider myself to be quite an open-minded person. (laughs) I kind of laughed at that first statement. But anyway, he said he was open to talk with me, um, and he went on to say that he's just angry about religious institutions like ours uh, that give people false hope when people should instead just be focusing on themselves and considering how they might make their own lives better. He went on to say that he was sickened to the core, that people have died in the name of religion. So my response to his response was given an opportunity to ask him to consider what defines a life well spent or a life that is wasted. You see, if God does exist... And an eternal destiny awaits all of us, either that being heaven or hell. That will make a massive difference on your appraisal as to what is a life well spent. This man thinks that a Christian endeavor is a waste of a life. But quite the contrary, any other endeavor is the waste of a life. We have to be ready for things like this, right? I mean this guy from the outset denies such a reality. He denies the immortality of the soul, which the scriptures speak to. Daniel 12:2 declares many of those who sleep in the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Matthew 25:46 explains the wicked will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I think that verse is really, really helpful in this regard because you have the word eternal life. And right before that, same word, Ionias used in connection with eternal punishment. So here we go. If you think that this punishment is just momentary and then over, well, then you also have to apply the same interpretive principle to the second eternal and say that eternal life is just momentary and then over. It's either we have eternal life and it goes on and on and on, and consequently there's also an eternal punishment that goes on and on and on, or neither of them go on and on and on. You can't just pick and choose uh, your options here. Second Thessalonians one nine speaks of those who will pay the penalty of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power, to a place where which Matthew or Mark 9.47-48 calls hell, where the worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. But meanwhile. Romans 6.23 tells us that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, this lawyer was right in his belief that there was a life to come. He was also correct to be concerned about whether or not he would see eternal life. The personal nature of this lawyer's question is also interesting to me. He wonders what he must do to inherit eternal life. His question seems to indicate... That eternal life was not his merely by lineage, not merely by birthright. This lawyer is sitting there going, How might I actually inherit eternal life? He wonders, What must I do to inherit eternal life? What will make him an heir of eternal life? What will guarantee his salvation? What will give him peace with God? This is a very reasonable question and an exceedingly reasonable concern. We might wholeheartedly applaud this man's inquiry, were it not for the fact that the Scriptures also provide us with insight into this man's intentions. He doesn't come with uh, completely above-board motivations. We're told that the lawyer came putting Jesus to the test. Also can be translated, tempting Jesus. Now, Granted, that phrase can be taken a couple of different ways. I mean, did he feel himself qualified to test the orthodoxy of Jesus? Did he feel like he could examine the credentials of Jesus and see, based upon his own knowledge of the law, whether or not Jesus would respond in an appropriate fashion? Was he attempting to ascertain whether Jesus was worthy of being followed? Or was he attempting, as so often was the case with the religious leaders, to set a trap for Jesus with the intention of exposing some sort of inconsistency that could be found in Jesus's teaching, whatever the specific reason, this inquisition seems to arise from a less than sincere motivation. Nevertheless, guys, the question is an important one, isn't it? How is eternal life inherited? On what basis is it granted? Given that we'll all live on in either the majestic glory of God enjoying him forever or endure endless torment in hell the just penalty that's due to all of us, the question ought to figure most prominently in our minds. The sad thing is, is most people spend most of their lives thinking about inconsequential matters in the eternal scheme of things. Men ought to lose sleep over this question. And regardless of the lawyer's motivations, Jesus makes use of the opportunity to highlight uh, the, the important relationship between, and we're going to see this together, the good news, or the gospel, and good works. Now, let's take note that even when people's motives are less than upright, oftentimes their questions can provide us with an opportunity for evangelism. And I just couldn't help but chuckling yesterday as I was having this dialogue with this guy who starts off with swearing at me and all the rest, and then at the end of it, he's talking with me about the gospel. Um, What I'd say is this guy had less than honorable motivations when he wrote me, but it's amazing how the Lord can make use of even those moments for us to share the gospel with another. Don't be surprised when the lost act like they're lost. Let's be ready for that. and Be ready with the truth of the gospel as we share with them. In this context, Jesus tells one of the most well-known parables of Scripture, what is famously remembered as the parable of the Good Samaritan. In fact, the story is so familiar that even in today's largely biblically illiterate culture, the phrase Good Samaritan is still utilized to describe selfless, charitable acts, right? I mean, even in our culture today where you can't use a whole lot of biblical allusions anymore because people just don't get them. because They just don't have a general understanding of the scriptures. This one still sinks in. People still understand this one. I'm sure that most of us are familiar with the content of this parable. But it's a tremendous joy to refresh our minds and our memories And consider this passage afresh this morning. We know that God's word is is true and therefore it's always relevant. So when we revisit a passage like this, we just are given an opportunity to examine its application to various things that are going on within our own lives and within the culture around us. We've seen various fads come and go. Various man-made philosophies will prance across the world stage. But all the while, God's word remains the same, making plain declaration of the way that things really are. With this in mind, I want to talk this morning about the relationship between the gospel and good works, the good news of the gospel and good works. It was in the early 20th century that a movement developed among some Protestant churches called the social gospel, and it's still having an impact among churches today. The social gospel began making social change and progress the focus of Christian ministry. That was the idea. Some believe that it was a mistaken form of postmillennialism that pushed this agenda forward. The idea being that Christ's return would only happen after society had been reformed. So the idea was we must advance re- reformation of culture, and of society, in order to usher in Christ's return. In the midst of advancing humanitarian causes and improving the morality of, this, of the country, social gospel proponents lost track of the fact That the biblical gospel works to change the soul first. And MacArthur has written so well on this subject, I thought I'd just quote him. He says this, God is not calling us to wage a culture war that would seek to transform our countries into Christian nations. To devote all or even most of our time, energy, money and strategy to putting a facade of morality on the world or over our governmental and political institutions is so badly is to badly misunderstand our roles as Christians in a spiritually lost world. God has above all else called the church to bring sinful people to salvation through Jesus Christ. If we do not evangelize the lost and make disciples of new converts, nothing else we do for people, no matter how beneficial it seems, is of any eternal consequence. Whether a person is an atheist or a theist, a criminal or a model citizen, sexually promiscuous And perverse, or strictly moral and virtuous, a greedy materialist, or a gracious philanthropist. If he does not have a saving relationship to Christ, he's going to hell. It makes no difference if an unsaved person is for or against abortion, a political liberal or a political conservative, a prostitute or a police officer. He will spend eternity apart from God unless he repents and believes the gospel. MacArthur then adds, When the church takes a stance that emphasizes political activism and social moralizing, it always diverts energy and resources away from evangelization. Such an antagonistic position towards the established secular culture invariably leads believers to feel hostile, not only to unsaved governmental leaders with whom they disagree, but also antagonistic towards the unsaved residents of that culture. Neighbors and fellow citizens, they ought to love, pray for, and share the gospel with. To me, it's unthinkable that we become enemies of the very people we seek to win to Christ, our potential brothers and sisters in the Lord. You see, MacArthur is making a really strong and important point. It's only the gospel, the true biblical gospel, that rescues sinners from sin, death, and hell. So it's right for us to resist attempts to reduce Christianity to a set of moral principles. And there are some organizations that put this forward, a Judeo-Christian ethic or morality. And they reduce Christianity to a set of moral principles. All kinds of religions abound advancing their set of moral principles. Christianity is not about advancing a set of moral principles. You see, our use of God's law in Christianity is for one very express purpose. There are a couple of other subsidiary purposes, but one important express purpose, and that is to highlight man's lack of righteousness and therefore his need for Christ. We hope that God would strip man of his pride, of his arrogance, of his self-righteousness, causing him to count all of that as rubbish that he might gain Christ and eternal life that comes only through Jesus. Yet I dare say there is the potential that we can overreact to the social gospel's wrongful emphasis on good works. We can note what MacArthur has said here, which I agree with. But it's potential that we could overreact to this by discounting all deeds of mercy and all humanitarian aid. Just as much as it is not the gospel message just to go around and try to moralize the country, it is also not the message of the gospel to turn a blind eye to injustice, to fail to plead the case of the orphan and the widow, to ignore the plight of those who are in extreme poverty, those who are in sickness, and those who are in trouble. Jesus explained that even the difference between those who are truly His, the sheep, and those who are not, the goats, as we had read this morning, will be manifested. By practical deeds of mercy. We read this from Matthew 25. After the king separates the sheep and goats. And he says, you guys are the sheep because you, you, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. And then the question comes from the sheep, well, when did we ever do that to you? And Jesus' response is, whenever you did this the least of these, you did it unto me. You see, those who have been saved, those who have been marked as inheritors of eternal life, do manifest that reality by the way in which they live. I believe the parable of the Good Samaritan and its surrounding context provides us with a careful balance here. While we're not saved by good works, we're saved for good works. Eternal life is not gained via good works. But those granted eternal life will live lives characterized by good works. We're familiar with Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. That's such an excellent job of succinctly putting this relationship down. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Listen, verse 10 though. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for... Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. So here in Luke 10, 25 through 37, the sermon called Good News and Good Works, I I want us to consider two parallel truths, two parallel truths. The first is this. The good news is that we are not saved by good works. The good news is that we are not saved by good. Good works. The second one we'll look at in a minute is that the good news is that we are saved for good works. So, first, let's consider the good news is that we are not saved by good works. Yet, this is what man's continued attempt is apart from Christ. He continues to attempt to save himself. Do you guys understand that every religion, every religion that is not Christianity, Somewhere along the line advances this concept salvation by works. You know what that really reduces to? An impossible gospel. Good news that is not good news at all, for no one will be saved in that fashion. We've already noted this lawyer comes testing Jesus. He asks him, Teacher, having done what, will I inherit eternal life? And so Jesus responds to this man's question. With a question. <laughs> Not an uncommon occurrence in Jesus' ministry. He did this quite often. As a matter of fact, this whole discussion revolves around that pattern twice. The lawyer asks a question, Jesus responds by asking a question, the lawyer gives an answer, and Jesus then commends that answer and commands action be taken in reference to that answer. It happens. Two times through the text. The lawyer says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what's been written in the law? The lawyer responds, love God with everything, and your neighbor is yourself. Jesus says, "Right. do that, and you'll live. Then, the next part of it, the lawyer asks, but who's my neighbor? Jesus responds, after telling the parable of the Good Samaritan, who's the neighbor to the one who is victimized? The lawyer responds, the one doing mercy. Jesus responds, go and do likewise. Jesus responds to his questions with a question. After he's answered, Jesus then commends the answer and says, do it. He's asked, what's written in the law? How do you read it? How does it read to you? Well, he responds by summing up the Old Testament law. He quotes from Deuteronomy 6.5, part of the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. And then he tacks onto that, reference from Leviticus 19.18, you shall love the Lord your God, or, I'm sorry, Leviticus 19.18, which speaks to loving your neighbor as yourself. So he conflates those two verses together and says, that's what the law puts forward. Love God with everything, love your neighbor as yourself. By the way, Jesus then responds to that by saying what? Right on. You've answered correctly. That's exactly right. As a matter of fact, when Jesus is asked himself on another occasion by another lawyer, what's the chief commandment of the law? You know what Jesus will say? This exact thing. He says the exact same thing. Now, this time, he doesn't ask the lawyer a question back. He just gives the answer in this case. And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, my soul, and strength. neighbor as yourself. And now that lawyer says, you've answered correctly. So we see this happen both ways. Why is this a correct answer? As Jesus explains in Matthew 22 it, that on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. The Ten Commandments, the Old Testament, have famously been summarized into two tables. The first four commandments summarized by that first command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second six commandments of the Ten Commandments, the second table of the law, is summarized by love your neighbor as yourself. We read in Romans 13 this morning, right? If you love your neighbor, you'll fulfill the law. Because loving your neighbor will obviously cause you not to harm him or hurt him in some way. And all of those prohibitions given in the Ten Commandments, uh, there in in number 5 through 10, uh, all will be fulfilled if you just love your neighbor. So you can sum up all of the prohibitions, all of the commands and prohibitions of Scripture in the law by those two statements. Love God with everything that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. It's a correct answer. The lawyer is right on. He is answered correctly. But eternal life is not based on being able to articulate the requirement, is it? Eternal life is based upon this man's ability to fulfill the requirement. The man is right to make this statement. But notice after Jesus says, yes, you're correct, he says, do this and you will live. If you're looking for something to do, do that. And if you do that, you'll live. Jesus affirms the answer. But note that by doing so, he does not advocate a works-based salvation. He merely says, yes, that's right. But it's one thing to interpret the law correctly and another thing to internalize and perform it. So Jesus commands, do this and you'll live. But the problem for sinful man is that he fails miserably at keeping this command, right? That's the issue. Yeah, do this and live. Okay, great. But I've already horribly failed that command. Even if from this moment forward, friends, you were to keep that command, you've already transgressed it. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength every second of every day, perfectly. And if this is the greatest command, then we could also call it the greatest sin, couldn't we? Jesus says, what's the greatest This is the greatest command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And meanwhile, we have all transgressed those commands repeatedly throughout our lives. Jesus says, yeah, sure. You've answered Right. It's not just a matter of whether or not you can articulate the requirement. It's whether or not you can live out the requirement. Have you fulfilled that requirement? Do this! And you'll live. You see, Jesus here slays this man's self-righteousness by making him feel the impossibility of salvation by his own righteousness. You see, the law is a friend to the gospel in this regard. It's a tutor to lead us to Christ. The law was given so that we would see just how sinful we are. So we would recognize just how depraved we are. That we would give up of our own futile efforts to save ourselves and recognize we need help from above. We need God to rescue us. Not just rescue us from others, but rescue us from ourselves. Romans three nineteen through twenty three makes it plain. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in His sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. How does salvation happen? The, verse, the passage goes on, but now apart from the law. The righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You go, how is this good news? (laughs) Good news is that we're not saved by good works. How is this good news? Well, it's wondrous news that we're not saved by our good works, because if that was what was required, none of us would be saved. That's why it's good news. If eternal life hinged on my good works, I'd have no hope of attaining it. But since eternal life is ours by faith in Jesus Christ, there is hope for even the chief of sinners. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all equally in need and God provides a remedy to those who call upon him that is sufficient to save to the uttermost. But note how this lawyer responds. (laughs) We see that after this impossible gospel is understood, man's continued attempt is to justify himself. Note the lawyer's response is to immediately seek to justify himself. There are certainly a couple of ways that we can understand the lawyer's motivation here. The lawyer could be trying to save face before the crowd. Remember how this goes down. The lawyer comes up, stands up and says, Jesus, what was he do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what does the law say? I just read to you. And then he responds, love the Lord your God with all your heart, my soul, and strength. And neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you answered correctly. Do this and you live. Now, it's possible at this point, the crowd would be going, why did this lawyer bring a question that he already knew the answer to? And what's going on here? So, perhaps this seeking to justify himself is a statement where the lawyer's now trying to give explanation as to why he asked this question in the first place. Because he wants to know... Exactly, and explain, he wants this to be further clarified for him. Who is my neighbor? He wants to ensure that he's covered all of his bases. He wants to get an exact description of what his neighbor, who his neighbor is. So that way he can make sure that he's actually fulfilled what is being commanded here. The other very real possibility is that the lawyer instantly feels conviction from Jesus' command that the lawyer do this. Perhaps the lawyer wishes to receive confirmation for his rationalizations about who qualified as his neighbor and therefore who it was that he actually owed love. Whatever the reason for the lawyer's question here, it assumes that there are neighbors and non-neighbors, right? He says, who then is my neighbor? And that question, by its very implication, means that there are neighbors and then there are those non-neighbors. Help me identify my neighborhood, Jesus, that I might love them. It seems that in good lawyer fashion, he's attempting to find a loophole in the law, right? Yeah, it says love your neighbor yourself, but who's really my neighbor, Jesus? I mean, maybe I'm still okay here. Maybe there's a legal loophole. Can I just say this is typical of how sinful rebellious men react to God's law? They attempt to justify their own actions by doing a couple of things. First of all, they maintain an inflated view of themselves. They think highly of their own righteousness, and they excuse or rationalize behavior that is condemned by the Scriptures. They also then attempt to limit the jurisdiction of law. Try to limit the jurisdiction of the law so that it doesn't highlight more of their sin. If they can kind of keep the law contained... (laughs) the law as small as possible and think as highly of themselves as possible, then maybe they won't feel the the conviction that comes from an honest dealing with the law in our consciences. Here the lawyer seeks to find the bare minimum requirements of the law so as to ease his own conscience. He wishes to lower the standards. He wants to shrink the extension of the law's potential application so he can maybe rest easy that he's done enough you know, because those people that I've been really hateful and mean towards, they don't actually deserve my love because they're not my neighbor. This sort of explanation. Perhaps if he can limit the size of his neighborhood, then he might be able to fulfill this command. Perhaps this is what he's thinking. But Jesus will have none of it. Jesus responds by telling the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now note that Jesus tells of three men who happen upon this beat up and half dead man. There's a priest, a Levite, and and then a Samaritan. The irony of the parable comes from the fact that not only do the priest and Levite pass by the poor soul on the other side of the road, but the hero of the story is of the most unlikely sort, a Samaritan. Now, we've lost the ability to gasp at that statement. I didn't hear anybody go, oh, a Samaritan. Everyone, we've lost the ability to gasp at that, haven't we? But understand to Jesus' audience, there would have been a noticeable, oh, This was completely unexpected. Perhaps we can recapture some of the dramatic effects of Jesus' words. If we were to contemporize the parable and say, there was some man on the side of the road, he's like half dead, and on here comes Pastor Jess. He just passes on the other side of the road, doesn't care at all about him. And then Deacon Steve comes on by, and he passes by on the other side of the road, and then a member of the Taliban comes up and stops, has compassion, takes this man to the inn, takes care of him, bandages his wounds, helps him. Now, all of a sudden, we're like, we have that back for us. Jesus tells a shocking story. At the end of the parable, Jesus asks the lawyer, which of these three seems to you to have been the neighbor to the one who had fallen among the robbers? Isn't it interesting? The lawyer can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. So what does he say? The one who showed him mercy. That guy. Point is the same, though. But Jesus is highlighting through the parables that it was a wrong question to ask how we might limit this command. Instead, we ought to consider how we can be a neighbor to all those around us. Also note that while Jesus' audience might have assumed that this man who was left half dead on the road was Jewish, note this. He is not described in the parable. We have no description of his nationality. As a matter of fact, after he's stripped and left naked and half dead on the ground, it's quite possible that no one would know necessarily what his nationality was. Especially if skin colors were similar. This emphasizes Jesus' point all the more. It doesn't matter who that guy is. It doesn't matter who he is. And isn't it interesting that he gives a lot of specificity as to the people who have opportunity to help this man? But he gives no description of the man who needs to be helped. Jesus changes the whole question. The question is not, how can we limit this command? It's, how might we expand the command to love others for everyone? The world is our neighborhood. That's Jesus' implied response. In other words, what he's saying to this guy is, your attempt... At rationalizing away, your lack of love for people will not work. It will not hold up in God's court of law. There is no loophole here for you. Everyone around you is your neighbor. Everyone who has you have an opportunity to help is your neighbor. Recognize this. The spirit of law condemns every man. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, If you have lust in your heart, it's as if you've committed adultery. If you hate in your heart, it's as if you've committed murder. We all are stripped and laid bare by the law. The good news is we're not saved by good works. We're saved by grace through faith. But second, I want to note the other side of this very careful balance. The good news is that we are saved for good works. Good news is that we are saved for good good works. In a fallen world that we all live in, presents us with great opportunity for compassion, doesn't it? The results of sin are all around us. There's no shortage of trials and tribulations for humanity. There are a good amount of difficulties which we can bring upon ourselves, but there are also sufferings that we encounter from the sinful actions of others against us, as well as difficulties that arise from what we call natural disasters, things like hurricanes, tsunamis, fires, floods, earthquakes, droughts, and all the rest. Given the circumstances that we all encounter in this fallen world, it does not take much to come across those who are in distress, to come across those who are in need of help, those whom we can be a neighbor to. Perhaps there are those circumstances that, direct as a, uh, that, that occur as a direct uh, punishment for something that we have done. For example, think of the example of a man is lazy and slothful, self-indulgent and won't work. Does neither let him eat. There are wisdom portions of scripture which says finally the guy's gonna get hungry enough, he's gonna go and get some work. Right? There are those kinds of occasions. But there are other cases in which someone is in genuine need due to no specific fault on their own, and these cases call especially for our attention. This man whom Jesus presents in the parable is traveling a dangerous stretch of path. He's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. If you look at a map. Uh, that doesn't accord with our normal ups and downs because Jericho is north, kind of northeast of Jerusalem. But it does afford very well with topography. The travel from Jerusalem to Jericho, if by, as, as the crow flies, is about 12 miles. But by the road, it's 17 miles. Why? Because over that stretch of, of road, the drop is over 3,000 feet in, evolu- in evol- elevation. There's the no word, elevation. This man was most literally going down to Jericho. And as a result, there were lots of caves, lots of crevices. And so some people even call this like the trail of blood. This is a place in which lots of robberies occurred. Because you have people hiding in caves, waiting for someone to come by and get them. Take their stuff. So this is what happens. The robbers, though, in this case, not only take this man's stuff, but they beat him up and leave him half dead along the road, stripping him of his clothing. Now, if this man is left to himself, he'll lose the other half of his life, right? He's beaten half to death, and he's going to die up there on the road if no one comes to help him. You know, a fallen world not only presents us with great opportunity for compassion, but a fallen world also means that there is a shortage of workers of good. A fallen world also means that there's a shorter shortage of of those who actually engage in good works. Now, Jesus explains, by chance or by coincidence, a priest was going down the road. Now, at first indication, if Jesus tells us, you'd be like, wow, great, this is supremely welcome news. Here comes the cavalry, right? cavalry, right? Here here it comes, whatever it is. What a wonderful opening in providence. Help has arrived. But then joy turns to a gasp horror and bewilderment when jesus says upon seeing the man the priest goes to the opposite side of the road and travels on past him and we're not left much time to wonder why because then all of a sudden jesus says another man a levite comes to the place again we might breathe a sigh of relief oh phew, phew. okay good whatever's going on with that priest who knows but then we are told that he like the priest having seen the man passes by on the opposite side of the road now we have to pause here why Why? But sadly, Jesus gives no reason here. Perhaps because it ultimately doesn't matter. Whatever the reason is, it wouldn't be sufficient. Here was a man in desperate need, and these men passed by him without so much as lifting a finger for him. They moved to the other side of the road to avoid him and to ignore him. If anyone had reason to perform an act of mercy and charity, it would be the religious leaders, right? They were familiar with this. You know, there's even Old Testament law that says if you find your enemies like, Animal, you return the animal. Your enemy, you return the animal to him. How much more if you find a man half dead along the road? These men should have been gentle and generous and full of sympathy, but none of that rises to the surface. Some have proposed that the priest avoids him because of some fear of defilement. Because priests, if this man was actually dead, if he touched him, then he'd be defiled and there'd be ceremonial uncleanness and all the rest. I have two responses to that. Number one, who cares? Uh, Who cares about your ceremonial cleanliness? If this man is dying, you help him, period. Secondly, though, I'm going to say this we're told specifically that also this priest was coming down the road. And if that is to be handled just as it was for the other man, we know that he's traveling away from Jerusalem. So he's already fulfilled his priestly duties. So why would that even be a concern? But there could be a whole host of other excuses that might have been produced. And while we might agree that we should do good to others, How sad it is that we often find ourselves becoming quite adept at producing excuses as to why we're not going to help in this particular case. Yes, I agree with the general principle that I love my neighbor, those who are in need. But in this particular case, I'm not going to help for one of the following reasons. C.H. Spurgeon provides a great litany of potential excuses that these men might have used. Remember, Jesus doesn't mention any. But perhaps... One of these could have been floating, or a bunch of these could have been floating through their minds. For example, and I'm just going to summarize these with little statements, and then you'll hear Spurgeon's words. Perhaps you've said this before, I'm in a hurry. For instance, the priest and Levite were both in a hurry. The priest had been away for a month at Jerusalem from his wife and his dear children. He naturally wanted to get home. Perhaps you've said this before, it's getting late. You know, if he lingered, the sun might go down. It was an awkward place to be there after sundown. And you could not expect him to be so imprudent as to stay in such in such a place with darkness coming on. Perhaps you've said this before. I'm tired. Had he not spent maybe a very laborious month in the temple? You don't know how exhausting he had found it to act as a priest for a whole month. And if you did, you would not blame him for wanting to get home to enjoy a little rest. I don't want others to worry. Besides, he had promised to be home at a certain hour, and he was a man of punctuality. He would by no means cause anxiety to his wife and children who would be looking from the housetop for him. Or, I'm not very skilled. He also felt that he really couldn't do much good. He didn't understand surgery. He couldn't bind up a wound to save his life. He shrank away from it. The very sight of blood turned his stomach. He couldn't bring himself to go near a person who was so frightfully mangled. If he did try to bind a balloon, he's sure he would make a muddle of it. Or, I don't have good supplies. If his wife had been with him, she could have done it. Or, if he had brought some plaster, some liniment, or strapping. He would have tried his best, but as it was, he couldn't really do anything. Or, it's a hopeless case. The poor man, moreover, was evidently half dead and would be quite dead in an hour or two. Therefore, it was a pity to waste time on a hopeless case. Or, perhaps... I would need more help to make a difference. Then the priest was the only person there that could be expected to carry a bleeding man, and yet it would be idle to begin with the case and leave him there all night. True, he could almost hear the sound of the Levite's feet. Indeed, he hoped he was coming up behind, for he felt very nervous about being alone with such a case. But thinking about that, someone else could just do it is all the more reason to just leave the matter. Let the Levite take care of it. Let him deal with the situation. Or I might put myself in danger if I helped this man. Better still is the following line of excuse. You would not have a person stop in a place where another man had been half killed by thieves. The thieves might be back again. They were scarcely out of hearing even then. And a priest after a month's service ought to have some thieves in his purse. And it was important not to run the risk of losing the support of his family by stopping in a place that was evidently swarming with highwaymen. He might be wounded, too, and then there would be two people half dead and one of them a valuable clergyman. Or get this, maybe he was concerned that he might be accused of wrongdoing. I mean, philanthropy would suggest that you take care of yourself as you could not possibly do any good to this poor man. And then the man might die and the person found near the body might be charged with the murder. It's always awkward to be found alone in a dark place with a corpse priest might be taken up on suspicion. Then all the principles of prudence suggest the very best thing he could do was to get out of the way as quickly as possible to flee the scene. Or perhaps he thought, "I'll just pray for the man." Or perhaps I'll just leave him a track. He could pray for the man, you know. He was glad to find that he had a track with him. He could leave that near him. And what with the track and prayer. What more could a good man be expected to do for this guy? Spurgeon concludes, All these powerful reasons put together made him content to avoid trouble and leave the doing of kindness to others. I'm an unloving neighbor whenever I make excuses for not doing what I know deep down Jesus wants me to do in helping someone else. Here's the question. Are we stopping to help those in need Or are we making excuses to pass them by? We can chuckle about the reasons Spurgeon gives his potential behind this guy's thinking, but how often have we allowed those sorts of rationalizations to stop us from providing genuine help to someone who's in genuine need? How seldom do we find a man who is really kind, generous, and compassionate except to himself and his own family. You see, it's the gospel that provides the forum to do genuinely good works. By now there might have been some expectation that Jesus would present a third traveler. You know, a lot of these parables, a lot of these stories happened on three. So we've gotten two really bad things going on. So maybe they aren't are starting to expect that a third person is going to come along and do something good. Perhaps they even suspected that Jesus would bring up a Jewish layman. You know, just the average Joe Jewish man who would be able to help help things along. But placed at the front of the sentence, and it's in the most emphatic position possible. And all the other ones, you've got other words before you get to, like, Pharisee or Levite. In this case, Samaritan is jammed at the very front of the sentence. Samaritan is just, like, staring you in the face. It was a device in Greek to emphasize a word. And now the audience may have thought, oh, boy, this man has suffered the worst string of providence or luck. Two men who might be expected to help him left him, and now a Samaritan is on his way, happening upon him. But oddly, it's the Samaritan who feels, we're told, compassion for the man. So when he sees the man, the next statement is instead of going to the opposite of the road and traveling past him, he felt compassion. And as soon as that expression of compassion is felt, it is immediately met with actual action. Note this is still the case with Jesus, too. He feels compassion, and he does something about that compassion. He says, oh, that's such a tragic situation. And he walks <laughs> by. Compassion moves to action here. And he bandaged the man's wounds. Probably here, the man didn't have any clothing, so he's probably tearing his own clothing to bandage this guy's wounds. He then pours on him oil and wine. Probably here, wine to disinfect the wounds and oil to provide some comfort to the man's pain. He puts him on his own animal, which then therefore means now he's going to be leading the animal, walking beside the animal. He gives him a a ride up to this inn where he takes care of them. He doesn't just drop them off for the night and go on his own way. He takes care of him that night. He stays with this man in an attempt to nurse him back to health. The next day, he gives two denarii to the innkeeper, which is enough money to have given room and board to this, to this man for, for many days. And then he promises to repay any other expenses that the man might incur while recuperating on his travel back through the area. The Samaritan provides a model for those who do help the afflicted. He jumped in with all that he had, and he helped as much as he could. Jesus' parable is meant to expound the meaning of what it means to love. You see, the lawyer was concerned about identifying who the man is that we're supposed to love. Jesus is concerned with exemplifying what it means to love. Rather than spending your time trying to define who your neighbor is, how about spending that time being a good neighbor? Being ready when a moment for mercy arrives. You see, this is the other part of the law that does need to be understood. Not only does God's grace save us from the condemnation of the law through Jesus Christ, so we're saved not by works, but by by grace through faith in Christ, but it is then that grace that saves us that then keeps us and will ultimately one day glorify us together with, with God. If this grace, in the meantime, right now, equips us to live in accordance with the law, again, Romans 13, owe oh, nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And he says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And the source of desire to do good deeds and the source of ability to do good deeds all comes from the Lord himself by the Lord's grace. Philippians 2 says, it's, it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I want to conclude this morning by mentioning that there have been many attempts to allegorize this parable, giving every little facet of it some Christological meaning. The most famous version of that is done by Augustine, who had a very specific one-to-one correlation. Every detail in this parable is linked to something else. But such approach, an approach, I think, falls victim to the problem that so many have whenever they try to allegorize the parables They lack any interpretive key, any strong basis for the particular allegory that's being promoted. So I reject that sort of an attempt. Because I think Jesus' purpose in telling this parable is straightforwardly given to us by the surrounding context. What he's doing is he's providing an answer to the lawyer's question. Who is my neighbor? Jesus gives the parable to the Good Samaritan manifest that the lawyer's question was misdirected. The lawyer's question implied that there was such a thing as a non-neighbor. Jesus' answer is to ask... Who is the one who acts neighborly? So Jesus here answers. His answer is to give a striking image of true and genuine love for one's neighbor. Rather than lessening the demands of the command to love, Jesus offers an example worthy of imitating. The meaning of the parable is straightforward. But I do have to agree with Mr. Spurgeon who believe that the truths about Jesus can be considered by way of analogy. While this parable wasn't told for the express purpose of making statements about Jesus, we can consider Jesus' ministry in comparison with the actions of the Samaritan. And what we end up discovering is that Jesus is not merely a good Samaritan, but the greatest Samaritan, for his ministry and actions go beyond anything pictured here. No man's actions can ever compare with the generosity of Jesus Christ. Amen? None has ever cared for the sick and suffering souls as he has. Consider our state. We weren't merely beaten, stripped, and left half dead, but we were altogether dead in our own trespasses and sins. We were wounded, not by someone else's acts, but by our own sinful acts. Meanwhile, Jesus in his wondrous love and compassion found us in our misery and in our rebellion And he spent his life to rescue us from the pit that we dug for ourselves, making we who were once enemies of God into friends. The Samaritan happened upon this man while he was about his daily course of business. But Jesus came with a specific purpose to help us. And Jesus didn't merely run the risk of being attacked by thieves, but was himself wounded, stripped, crucified, and laid in the grave for our sakes. He came to suffer and die at the hands of godless men that he might deliver us from sin and eternal punishment. And while the Samaritans' gifts to this man were very generous, they're not worthy to be compared with the riches given to us by Christ. We're given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We're given peace with God our Father. We're granted forgiveness of our trespasses We're given adoption as sons, by which we can cry out, Abba, Father. We're granted an inheritance reserved in heaven for us, which will not fade away. He who was rich for our sakes became poor, that we, through his poverty, might be made rich. And while the Samaritan went away and said he would return to make good on any further expenses the man might accrue, Jesus our Lord, following his resurrection from the dead and ascensioned into heaven, Promise not only to be present with us always, even to the end of the age, but also to come again, arrayed in glory, to bring everything to its fitting conclusion. So I close by asking you to evaluate yourself along these two lines the two lines I've been mentioning here in the sermon. First, the good news is that we're not saved by good works. If you were to hope in your own works, consider what this text requires. What is the requirement if you're to hope in your own works for salvation? You must love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And by loving your neighbor as yourself, it's to do it all the time in the Samaritan's fashion. That kind of love for other people all the time. For all your life, without a single failure. Let me ask you, have you completed that perfectly? Can you say, yes, this I have done, and therefore I will live. Or would you admit that you have not, that you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? Is there any hope that you will receive eternal life if that was a reward for your behavior? All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. By works of the flesh, no one will be justified. But there is good news in the gospel for what we are incapable of accomplishing, God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And if you will repent of your sin and believe in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And second, the good news is that we are saved for good works. And if the greatest Samaritan has saved and redeemed you, how can you not respond in deep gratitude and thanks, thankful obedience unto him? If you've been saved, it's your driving passion to be well-pleasing to the Lord, so work hard as his servant Advance in practical deeds of kindness and compassion. Seek opportunities to be gracious and magnanimous. Excel in acts of kindness and deeds of mercy. As Galatians 6, 9 says, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will will reap. If we don't, grow weary. Consider it a tremendous privilege to spend your life in doing good to others, for this will ultimately bring glory to God And perhaps lead to the salvation of many. I close with Matthew 5.16 where Jesus says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your marvelous word and for the corrective that it serves to our thinking for a way of living, to the pursuit of our lives. We admit that we are not saved by good works and we rejoice in this. We rejoice that it's not by a man's own works that he saved, but by the completed work of Jesus Christ who fulfilled all righteousness, the righteousness that we lack, who then died and laid down his life as a sacrifice for many and then rose again from the dead conquering sin and death. Thank you, Lord, for the marvelous news that what we are incapable of fulfilling, you have done. You have provided the means by which we can be saved and be granted an inheritance of eternal life. And Lord, I pray also that after having rightly understood that, that we would then find it a tremendous joy and privilege to pour ourselves into good deeds for your glory. Not that they save us, but as a result of your salvation, you having saved us, that they would demonstrate your glory. They would use them to bring more people to Christ. They would advance your kingdom. The other Others would see our good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.